The following program is furnished by Startup Nation Media Group. Welcome to Startup Nation Radio. On this edition of Startup Nation, we've got an entrepreneur extraordinaire on the air with us today. We've got uh, Catherine Petrelia. She's the co-founder of Cabbage. That's spelled with a K, K-A-B-B-A-G-E. Now, many of you have heard of Cabbage, the online lending source, really important for small business, has seen rapid growth, incredible growth. And Catherine, welcome to Startup Nation. We want to hear your story and hear how you founded this great company. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So Catherine, you are, you know, Cabbage is the kind of the ultimate success story. But, you know, you were doing entrepreneurial endeavors prior to Cabbage. First of all, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from? What was your education? And how did it all lead to a life of entrepreneurship? You know, I don't think entrepreneurs often pick their path. You just sort of wind up in it uh, opportunistically. And that's certainly the case for me. I grew up in Tampa, Florida. My dad was an attorney, so he had a job there, super random location. My family has been in the South for many hundreds of years, and I just happened to grow up there. But what I'm really fortunate about is that my parents were um, both really into education. They were the first folks in both of their families to graduate from high school. They both got graduate degrees. My mom got a PhD. My dad was an attorney. And so education was always really important. Mm -hmm. They got me a computer when I was nine in 1979, Mm. when that wasn't a normal thing. And I think that's what really um, sort of ignited my interest in technology. Yeah, that's exactly how things happen. There's the great story about Einstein being given a compass by his father when he was a young boy. And that kind of set him on his path of being interested in all that he was, you know, really set him on his path, much in the same way as you describe it, you getting a computer really set you on a path of getting a computer at a time, as you say, when, you know, that wasn't very common. That was a really unique and cool thing, I'm sure. And it ignited your interest in technology and entrepreneurship. And you didn't start by founding Cabbage, you you uh, was it Revolution Money? Is that the name of the company that you were president of, uh, vice president of before founding Cabbage? Cabbage is my seventh startup, so wow. I have wow. been in a lot, involved in a lot of them over the years. And again, kind of a circuitous path to get there. But I I was in graduate school studying literature, planning to be an English professor, when a family friend approached me about a technology company in which he'd invested. That was sort mm. of like Pied Piper in Silicon Valley, if you watch that show. Mm-hmm. It was a data compression company. And I was my first exposure to using the internet in, um, in a way that could benefit anyone. In this case, it was to be able to download software so you didn't have to load 16 Windows 95 disks into your computer mm-hmm. to get your operating system. And so that was your first exposure to entrepreneurship. And your role there? It was, I was just a consultant. I just, he just brought me in to find out, was there actually a thing there? And that was in 94. I finished my graduate school program. I decided being an English professor probably wasn't my jam. Mm -hmm. And um, wound up starting my own company um, that was effectively, it was a multiple merchant e-commerce platform that allowed you to shop for multiple catalogs. And what happened is I was exhausted by checking the mail every day. And this was in 1995. There were so many catalogs. I thought, this is really stupid. Like, why can't I just do this online? And that's what that company was. And um, that was sort of, I I think I got my first taste of being my own boss and doing my own thing and solving interesting problems with technology. And once you get a taste of that, it's hard to think about being an English professor, you know, versus (laughs) the exciting dynamic life of pioneering every day and taking risks and, and achieving things that are otherwise seemingly impossible 
you know, that's a pretty exciting world for a young person to be in. I, I know that because my path was much the same. You know, once you sink your teeth into it, like I said, it's hard to let go. I have a funny story from that company. Um, it was called Specialty Shops, which I'm not in marketing clearly by the name of that company. But um, I, I had to go to the West Coast to we raise a tiny little bit of money, like $40,000. And um, I needed to go to the West Coast to get some big catalogs on the platform. And so I flew to Seattle. I brought with me my tent and my sleeping bag oh. and um, a little pot and some freeze-dried food. And I camped my way from Seattle down to San Francisco, had a bunch of meetings. Wow. And it was the most cost-effective way to conduct those meetings. And I was probably, I was what, 25 or 26 at the time. And it, it seemed normal to me then. But I mean, I didn't, I barely even had a cell phone. Like that was just crazy. I can't believe I did that. That is a pretty exciting story. So now we're kind of getting the picture of you. I mean, you are, how do they say that? They, you march to your own drumbeat. Would that be right? I think that's you, right? I, that's probably right. I think it's probably um, a little off pitch, but sure. <laughs> uh, well, I think that, you know, you're not afraid to explore things, to not necessarily follow the tried and true conventional path. You know, I mean, you clearly, right? I mean, uh, you, you, you got a good education, but you broke away from that. Not that you didn't put any of that to work, ultimately, being a citizen of the world and even leading companies, co-founding great companies. But really, you know, you went your own way. And it led you to co-founding Cabbage, which has got to be one of the, one of the great achievements. Uh, h- tell us how that happened. Um, h- how was it that you were in a position to found Cabbage? It's really born out of a collision. Um, My co-founder, Rob, had an interesting idea. eBay had launched an API in 2007, and that API allowed third parties to get access to seller and transaction-level data. And he thought to himself, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if you could use that to make a small business loan. Rob and I had worked together previously. Um, His company was a consultant to my company working on intellectual property. And so he called me up and said, hey, you know about lending stuff. Like, what do you think about using this data to make a small business loan and to automate. And I thought, that's, that's actually kind of cool. I'm sure you could do that. And ignorance was really our friend because we didn't sure. know that small business lending was very manual. My background was in consumer financial services. I've been in fintech since the late 90s and didn't know a lot about small business. But it was a, we thought it was a fun idea. And of course, who doesn't want to raise money for a small business lending platform in the middle of the recession? It, it seems awesome, right? Mm, seems awesome. It seems challenging. It seems... <laughs> Perfect for you. <laughs> I right guess up so. your alley. You're probably right. Yes. Yep. So so we did, and we, we thought it was a fun thing to do. We, we built the platform and raised a little money, and you just every day you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm still doing this. That's cool. So we want to hear how you take I mean, Cabbage now, of course, is I think you guys have lent over $6 billion to small businesses, and you've got this automated platform that you've built online. You, customers can apply in minutes and source much-needed funding uh, quickly, rapidly. And it's really worked. And the brand has been built. It's a great brand. You know, we, we know the brand in the small business community. It's a go-to source now. And I, I, we want to hear, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we want to hear really what were the key steps in building Cabbage, you know, from an idea really to the, the massive success that it is today. Can we count on that, Catherine? Absolutely. All right, let's run to a break. We'll be back with Catherine's story of how she and others who founded Cabbage built it into this great success. Stick with us on Startup Nation Radio. Back in a minute. 
All right, welcome back to this edition of Startup Nation Radio. We've got Catherine Petrelia with us, and she's about to tell us the story of how the great startup Cabbage was built. Cabbage, the online lending source, uh, now having lent over $6 billion to small businesses uh, since 2009. Catherine, so you guys had this idea. It had merit. You bought into it. You were ready to make a move and make you know Cabbage your next big focus. Tell us about the early days. Did you guys sit down and come up with a business plan or, you know, what were the early formative days like uh, once you all bought in and you were going to do this? It's, it's fun when we, we talk about this. People ask us a lot about what were those days like. And we kind of realized that you don't just incorporate your business and then that's the thing you do now. It just is this slow migration. And you realize that now every day you get up and you go do this thing. So you must have, that's what your job is now. Like now you do this business. And so that's what it was like for us. We just this sudden realization over a period of time that we're in it and we're excited about it. And I think a lot of it was we really enjoyed working together. There were three of us who started the company and we had fun and we laughed and we thought it was a fun problem to solve. And we took great pleasure every time. Okay, I'm lying about that. We didn't take mm. great pleasure. Every time an investor mm. and a potential investor told us no, we tried to figure out how to turn that front upside down. And over time, it did become a badge of honor that so many folks didn't want to invest. And it was terrible timing, to be fair. And we were, I would say, untested founders, certainly the three of us as a group. But we just realized that this was an interesting problem and that customers wanted it. And that when we turned the switch on, we automated something that had never been automated before. And that story has played out. From that moment in 2010, when we made our very first online loan to an eBay business, to wow. um, I would say May of 2020, when we automated more than 300,000 PPP loan applications. Unbelievable. So I, I think, you know, our DNA is, is full of that. So, you know, ultimately, your business became very sophisticated. In the early going, uh, I, I'm sure, like all startups, you were in a messy phase and figuring it out as you're, you're going flying by the seat of your pants to a large extent. Where did the funding come uh, from early on? What was the source of capital that you were then turning around and lending to these various businesses? Our co-founder, Mark, um, he went on to start another company called Rody Actually, It's a really interesting gig economy company in its own right. He um, said he would call it friends, family, and fools. That's how <laughs> we got the first couple million dollars. We have one investor who we think invested just because he was so tired of Mark texting him. He's like, fine, how oh. much does it need to be? And he just, and he wow. just read the check because he was exhausted. We actually made his last name a verb to Gorland someone is to get them to do the thing that they don't want to do. So uh, that was really how we did it. You just have to ask for the money like over and over and over again. And that's how we did it. And then we proved out, hey, customers wanted to use this thing. And then it was easier to raise money after that. It's always been a hard business and raising money is always hard. But the more you demonstrate, the easier it gets. Right. So once you uh, accepted that early financing and then you made loans, to those who needed them, and you obviously placed your bets wisely, you were able to demonstrate a track record of success by not only returning the principal, but a returning a return on that capital back to the investor that was appealing. That is correct. And, and it meant that we had, a, there was a lot of financial engineering, not in a bad way, in a good way that went on. I mean, it was a very complicated business because you needed equity capital to run the business. You needed debt capital to finance the loans. Um, we tried a bunch of different models from, you know, direct marketing and lending, which we actually found to be the most successful, to partnering with banks and other big institutions to market 
with theirs. And we just tried a lot of things. We invested in a lot of options and we tried to stay a little bit ahead of the curve and to try to figure out as everybody wants to do, where is the puck going to be? Of course, nobody could have predicted where we are right now. Right, right. Well, I, and I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you couldn't have predicted where you are right now. I mean, we all, none of us could have predicted where we are right now. It's crazy times. But in terms of the success of your business, when did you kind of, there, there must have been a moment when you said to yourself, hey, we're on to something here. This is going to go, right? Yeah, it's it's so hard. Like, I don't even, it's so hard for me to look back and think, what was that pivotal moment? One of our investors sent us a gong that we could bang at our company town hall when we hit our the first million dollars in borrowing mm. that was like you know a long time ago that was probably <laughs> nine years ago right and um so that was a big moment then there's when do you have 20 employees or when did you generate your first 10 million dollars of revenue or one million dollars of revenue there's all these different moments where you're like oh well, like that's a pretty big deal we did that thing when did you raise a hundred million dollars when did you deploy a billion dollars um, you know, there's just so many different measures. And I, I think entrepreneurs are so driven by the next thing that you don't often stop to say, oh, look at this amazing thing that we already did. Right. You're saying you don't stop and celebrate. You're always pursuing the next level of the next measure of success. Right. I mean, I know that well. You know, everyone always says to me, you know, I, I refer to my, when, when I say many times I catch myself saying this, you know, when I'm successful one day. And people look at me and they're like, are you, are you kidding me? You know, what, what seriously? Uh, but that's the, that's our nature, right? I mean, it's never, not that, not that there's never enough money, but success. I mean, it's a, we raise the bar high for ourselves. People like you, people, you know, I mean, entrepreneurs in general, we're not okay with good enough. Generally speaking, of course. There's always more to do. There's always more work to do. And there's always, you know, something else to accomplish. It doesn't mean that you don't appreciate and celebrate the amazing work that you've done. I have to tell you, I, I've been saying this a lot lately. I, when I am 90, I'm 50 now. When I look back on my career, I 100% know that I am going to look back and cry as I do now when I think about the amazing work that our team did during mm. the pandemic, delivering PPP dollars, it was Herculean. It was superhuman. These mm. people and what they did to 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 achieve that. I I mean, I just I, it gives me chills every time I think about it. I'm I'm so proud. Well, and that speaks to uh, having a great team, right? I mean, you can't. All these startup stories. There are a few things in common. One thing that is in common always is the quality of people behind the project. If you don't have that great team, those people that can do those Herculean things, do things uniquely incredible, you know, not just good, but great. And that's a demonstration of, of course, you as a founder and leader of the, you know, part of the leadership team of the company, you appreciate them, but I mean, that you got to have the great people, got to have the great people. That was one of the keys to your success, obviously. Was the vision kind of a, a you know, straight line path from startup to success, or were there times that, you know, other than the details of how you were going to execute what you were going to do, essentially the vision for the company was consistent back to day one, and you were on that linear journey, right, to, to, the, to reach success? If you've ever had an EKG, then you, that's what our path looked like. <laughs> so 
was, it was definitely circuitous for sure. Really? L- lots of, of mountains. Of, well, you know, we just thought, hey, let's start making loans to eBay businesses. And then mm-hmm. we just kept taking advantage of opportunities. Now, suddenly, we could get access to data that helped us build um, products for brick and mortar businesses too. So by 2015, you know, we'd moved away from e-commerce, not away. We had built, built a bigger circle to include more businesses. And then we thought, oh, well, you know, we tried a bunch of stuff. Some of it didn't work. We tried serving consumers. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, that did not work out for us, timing being the primary issue. Um, we tried partnering with banks, as I mentioned earlier. And then we realized that our customers are really worried about cash flow. Small businesses, when they think about cash flow, it's not some, like, complicated thing you learn in business school. It's literally, do you have enough money next week and next month to do the things you need to do to make sure your business runs. It's really pretty simple. And pretty we realized simple. that our customers yep. were, they were spending too much money, borrowing too much money, keeping it for too long and paying too many dollars in fees. And we're like, we got to fix that. Like, how do you fix cash flow? So we began to build other products to support that. Mm. And that's, that's where we are now. And so what is the, you know, as you look into your crystal ball, what is the future for cabbage or of cabbage? You know, where do you think the company's headed? I think it's building. I, I would. I, we did a video a couple of years ago with an employee who's an actress, and um, it was kind of this this idea of a of a business owner who wakes up in the morning and their smart speaker talks to them and says, "Hey, you know, you've got these four things to do. You probably need to cover it with this amount of dollars. You might need to borrow two hundred dollars. You want to do that or two thousand dollars? Yes, I say yes. It's this idea that you have an, a, a co-pilot." something that is helping you throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month and year um, that helps you maximize your capital so that you're spending as little as possible and earning as much as possible on the money that you have. Um, and so that's kind of what we want to build this like autonomous treasurer to help businesses manage their cash flow because no one who is an entrepreneur says, oh, you know what I love about this job. Right. Managing, I love managing, managing my flow. financial it's records so and cash awesome. flow. On the, right. Right. Boy, isn't that fun? <laughs> Those are words never said. <laughs> right. I mean, it could yes. be fun when it's coming, when it's all coming in, <laughs> but, but until that point, it's not, uh, it's not fun. That's for sure. Listen, you were on the 2017 Forbes list of power women. And in December of 2017, you were also listed by TechCrunch as uh, one of the 42 women succeeding in tech uh, in that year. And, you know, you, you've been recognized. You've, uh, you've had great success, obviously, being associated with the founding of Cabbage. Um, great career, and congratulations. And thank you for sharing your story on Startup Nation Radio, Catherine. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we will look forward to watching Cabbage closely and to utilizing its great service offering as well. Back with more on Startup Nation Radio right after this break. All right, welcome back to Startup Nation Radio. We are focusing our show today on some of the changes that businesses have had to face as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated financial and economic crisis and all that goes with it that we all know too well and so painfully. But Hopefully, we're starting to turn the corner and starting to look forward and thinking about tomorrow as opposed to just what we've had to deal with over the last couple of months. And we've got a really important guest on today with us who can speak to uh, changes right from the uh, the heart of our region's 
entrepreneurial community, and that is Amanda Luan. She's founder and CEO of Bamboo Detroit, a really important co-working space. Amanda, welcome to Startup Nation Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. You've been a guest before, and um, you know, and I mentioned that you're an important bellwether company in our entrepreneurial community here in Southeast Michigan. I say that because you've been an innovator, you've been very progressive, you've got an important co-working space where lots of startups and uh, startup founders are based and working and collaborating and so on. And I mean, first, just tell us, you know, here we were, we were going along, everything's rolling, you're looking forward, making new plans for growth and so on, and boom, everything changes in an instant. What has it been like? Uh, I I think it's particularly acute for someone like you because you have lots of startups in the incubator there. And... uh, you know, all feeling the same kind of pain. Tell us about what the last couple of months have been like. Yeah, I think it's funny you said instant. It did feel like it, it happened so fast, didn't it? We heard about, you know, something growing outside of our, you know, across the world. And then the shutdown was extremely quick. But um, so we pivoted to virtual right away. And for us being a co-working space where we essentially are a hub, like you were saying, we have lots of resources and networking. And so, some of that is hard to replicate, but uh, working virtually, we were able to get up virtual programming almost within a week. We started a series called Coping with COVID. And the interesting thing about that was we were able to get national and, and you know access to great speakers that normally actually don't pass through our doors in Detroit. And so mm. that was one positive that happened. Mm-hmm. But a lot of our startups and small businesses are still doing pretty well. Um, I think the PPP loans and some of that started to trickle in and we're hearing some of the startups, um, they're kind of essentially hibernating and pushing yes. back any venture capital fundraising if they need, if they can. Uh, and some are even more relevant because, you know, a lot of them are building technology and in a more virtual world, uh, technology is like your number one tool for being productive and for reaching your customers. So it, it definitely hits everybody differently. Uh, but a lot are still hanging in there and doing really well and, um, I think we're all hopeful and reemerging together. Well, that's that's really good to hear. I mean, just even hearing that, you know, just uh, gives us reason for confidence. I mean, and it's a good time for renewal. I will tell you, though, and looking forward and feeling at least a little better about the circumstances, there's no doubt there's going to be long-lasting change. I mean, th- yeah. it, things will not be the same, will they? I mean, they just can't be. No, and I, I think that's so when we had a lot of speakers on our show that we were doing, um, that was part of why we wanted to get ahead and think through what are the behavioral changes that are going to come from this. And, you know, it's all a guessing game right now. Uh, some things immediately are going to stick, right? Social distancing, yes. wearing masks in public spaces, you know, the office, especially co-working, um, I think sometimes had a trend of cramming people into rooms, and that's not going to be the case anymore. So we, to reopen safely, you know, de-densified a lot of that space and mm-hmm. spread things out a little, even a little bit further just to make folks very comfortable and spread out throughout the space. Um, but what the long-term behavioral impacts will be, I think will be fascinating, right? It will be. Will we be it more be. health? Will we be more health conscious as people? Will we realize we're more connected? Um, right. Just, ge- just generally speaking, I thought about you. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. We think the future will be more flexible when it comes to work styles. Essentially, America went through this experiment of we're all working from home. And startups and small businesses, most of us didn't work at the office every day. We had a, a very flexible working style. It really depends on the type of company. 
But we were more open to that. And what the big shift will be will come from corporate America. And you have lots of trends now where folks are saying it might be staggered back in or, you know, essentially we can prove we can work from home. So uh, corporations are going to be challenged more than ever to allow for flex work. And in the office space industry, especially co-working, um, we think actually that will grow over the next few years as you see more people working from home. They like to get out and complement that, whether it's one day a week, mm-hmm. one team offsite. I think the biggest, you know this being in the startup world, the biggest yep. thing you can't replicate is that brainstorm session with a whiteboard and a marker. That is And a couple sure. of your key people in the room. And, yes. and that's what, what we heard. You know, we tried to survey our folks right away when we um, all went vi- virtual is that you actually can be really productive at home. Sometimes it's hard to focus, but you really, it's tough to really collaborate and yeah. have that sense of community. And those are the reasons why people may even start to come back um you know, on their own terms and in their own ways, but but those things are hard to recreate. Sure, of course. I want to probe that more deeply when we come back from the break. We've got to go to a break in about a minute. Before we do that, though, let's set some perspective. Um, so for purposes of context, how many companies did you or do you still have in the incubator right now? Yeah, so a lot of our companies are post-incubation, and they've already fundraised, um, and they're all different stages now. So we're a couple hundred companies um, at Bamboo. That's incredible. So a couple hundred companies, a couple hundred startup companies in various stages of evolution. Have you seen, I mean, I have to ask just before we go to the break, have you seen a lot of drop off or do you expect that the majority of those will be continuing with you? No, not yet. I think everyone's doing actually pretty good, Um, you know, and we try to be as flexible and helpful as we could uh, in a lot of different ways. But I think uh, most people are still doing actually really well. That's really good to hear. That's really good to hear. Now, when we come back, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, Amanda, I want to talk. You mentioned some of the things about the future uh, very generally, but I want to get more specific. I've got a few questions for you. We'll ask you right after this break on Startup Nation Radio. All right. Welcome back to Startup Nation Radio. We've got Amanda Lawan, founder and CEO of Bamboo Detroit, a real leader in the Southeast Michigan, in particular, Detroit entrepreneurial community. Amanda has a co-working space called Bamboo, and it's important. 200 companies getting their wings there in that co-working space. And Amanda, I have to ask, you know, you started to paint the picture looking forward a little bit, both as it relates to Bamboo, but more broadly as it relates to this idea of co-working spaces. And, you know, the heart of this next question that I have for you is really the essence of the co-working business model is that you're going to provide space for people to work and be productive and so on. I have to imagine that with now people working from home, proving that they can work from home effectively and productively, to me, it seems like there's going to be some kind of hit to the co-working space model. But if anybody's got an answer for us that can help put that picture in, uh, in, in its appropriate light, I know you can. So, Amanda, tell us, how do you think this is going to impact uh, your company in the co-working space? Actually, all of our industry and the commercial industry real estate trends show that co-working will become more relevant and grow once we sort of get through this redesigning and social distancing, the way people work will be more flexible, and that means they will want more flexibility with their offices. You're going to see even less people committing to long-term leases. I've already gotten dozens of calls of people wanting to downsize, mm-hmm. and rather than have a big suite, since most of the people don't have to be there, they won't have just a small office presence, still get that perks of having a safe space to go to. And for everyone listening, commercial office space has been kind of trending this way. You had the big headquarters, the big 
corporate campuses, and now you've seen shifts to more decentralized offices, smaller HQs spread out around the country, and we're going to shift to even further to a work-from-anywhere type of lifestyle where you might choose the days you go into an office because you might need that one or two days outside of your home life, depending on what you need and what your personal preference is. Now, how that's going to affect co-working is I think you're going to see even more flexibility, like getting an office by a week, getting an office for just a month versus, you know, traditional office space. And for us, too, we're going to have all kinds of virtual events through the rest of the year. So it'll be different, but I think it'll be more flexible and more needed than ever as we reemerge in the next six to 12 months. Right. There is going to be. I mean, it really is is kind of a trite to say it, but it's so perfectly appropriate. There will be new normals in every aspect of life, whether it be in business or just in life in general. And I think that's a good answer that you gave. And I I do buy that answer. I think that uh, you've made a good case as to why co-working space could even emerge, you know, more a more attractive option for businesses. There's no question you mentioned in the previous segment that people you can't replace that whiteboard session where you're in person brainstorming, collaborating. There's still something to be said for that in-person meeting, and and that's a perfect example of how and why. Yeah, and we think, actually, you've been in a lot of co-working spaces. You've seen the trend. I think when people think of co-working, they don't realize, actually, it's kind of more small offices, like a room for just you and maybe a couple others to spread out in. And that's been a trend for a while, and that's going to keep growing. We think people will feel a little bit more safe and secure knowing they have a private suite versus being in a big common area. So there'll be adjusting designs like that over uh-huh. the next couple of years that we'll probably see. I don't think it'll be the death of the open floor plan. Uh-huh. I think there'll just be changes and more privacy, a little bit more dividers, more spacing out, right. maybe more private office builds. So it, it, it's a, it's a merging of a couple different things that we'll probably see here. Right. I've paid particular attention to the open office floor plan kind of concept because we have that here in our Startup Nation offices. And you mentioned you don't think it'll be the death of the open floor plan, but it's funny. I've seen so many articles with just that title. The death of the yeah. open floor plan, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, I mean, I mean, this is, uh, as I said, it's going to create a new normal, but l- let me ask you this now, coming back into your space, what are some of the things that you're doing to make the various people yeah. coming and going feel comfortable, like new policies, new, you know, uh, hygiene and, and, you know, health related uh, sorts of things that you're going to be initiating at the, at the space? I think the challenge for every small business owner and startup listening is that if you do have physical space, you now have to think through the customer experience in a very detailed way with, just like you said, safety and wellness in mind. So we think through it um, from before coming, having that health screening form signed off so that we know that you are in a state of good health before returning to your office. And you're basically going to ask, you know, things like, have you been exposed or have you been sick in the last, you know, the basic questions. Uh, You're getting those guidelines just for others out there listening who might want to get guidance from you on how to do this. Is that, are you, are you drawing on the CDC guidelines or where? where... CDC, and Mm -hmm. we look to the city of Detroit actually has a great website called DetroitMeansBusiness.org, I believe, that they put together and they shared all their examples. So yeah, you look to your city your state, your CDC, Um, but even coming in and looking for ways to make buildings less touchless, uh, masks in common areas, you know, we have uh, different stickers throughout the floor, so you know not to bump into people, you're sort of walking all in one same direction, and temporarily keeping kitchens closed, or looking now that restaurants are reopening, we're looking at maybe just paper products and kitchens to limit sharing of things. You have to think through how your customer journey is in a very detailed way, because we're sort of, we're learning to reenter public spaces and to yes. build trust uh, again. And so you have to be very careful. And so we've thought that all through. Our common areas are de-densified, so less seating, 
more spread out, and we have beautiful new dividers that we put up. Instead of just slapping plastic everywhere, we got them designed locally and added it so that they almost serve as like a little private whiteboard space around you, too. And so um, we also think that a lot of our companies are telling us that they're going to stagger in. Mm-hmm. So they may not come right. every day anymore, right. 9 to 5, right. but they'll come in two days a week mm-hmm. or they'll rotate what team members go in. And for those working from home, I mean, if you have kids, you have different, you know, situations, maybe you're not in a safe space at home. So, yeah, it's a very it's a very detailed process. I think it's been challenging for a lot of small business owners. We're grateful. Our vendors and our teams have stepped up and helped us. Um, but we, it's slightly adjusting uh, each step along that process. I think that's all interesting and really helpful. I think in, uh, an, another thing I wanted to just make sure I had the opportunity to talk to you about is that because you are involved or you have touch points with some 200 different companies right now, I'm kind of curious about the entrepreneurial mentality, uh, you know, kind of spirit right now. What are you yeah. sensing? What are people feeling out there? You know, I, you know, obviously I'm in touch with it. But I still feel somehow and somewhat disconnected. You know, uh, there are things happening out there that we just can't see and be part of. And we're just getting occasional little slices here and there based on who we talk to or what any individual touch point is. Or maybe we're talking to a couple of people or whatever it may be, but it's so different than it used to be. And so someone like you who has this broad uh, exposure and opportunity to hear from others, tell us what you're experiencing. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because everything we're talking about is adapting, right? We're shifting into a new normal, and we've had to pivot a lot of different services, all of us, and everyone probably listening on this call. But entrepreneurs are natural adapters. We're constantly changing. We're constantly improving, and we're constantly getting feedback from our customers. So I think we're actually more set up to thrive in situations like this because we have that natural mentality. Not that it's easy. It's definitely been a crisis and hit people in a lot of different ways. Um, when it comes to the Detroit ecosystem, I still feel very positive. We had a lot of, and also nationally too, a lot of venture capital funds were being raised and closing, I think, I believe the end of last year. And so some of the investors we've talked to, like, They might have been pausing for a little bit or supporting their portfolio companies, but I think that's going to pick up again. Um, And you're going to see people feeling a little more comfortable investing as we go towards the end of the year. Uh, Nobody knows, I think, how long the economic impact will be, but so many startups start during uh, declines and recessions. All these big, great tech companies have done that. And so I think we're going to get through this and be good. It's going to take time and work, but it'll be good to see what comes out of it from um, an innovation standpoint. Well said. And I think you've captured it. I do think company, great companies have come out of times like these. And I think other companies who have proven they're great companies have been able to pivot very successfully while others haven't. Those that you know succeed and have grown and so on, they're able to be flexible enough to pivot their models, meet the changing needs and demands of their market. And I think those are hallmarks uh, of the great companies. And I think another hallmark of entrepreneurs is this fighting spirit. We tend to almost you know have a wake-up call when we're challenged and want to fight even harder. And I see that fighting spirit coming through. And then you mentioned venture capital. I think when we see investments start to return, that's when you're really, I mean, oh, it'll be like a breath of fresh air. You know, just seeing that money start to flow again, investment into companies flow again, is going to create such, literally, I think almost like euphoria, you know, knowing that we're going to be okay, that that money's going to start to flow again, companies are going to grow again, companies are going to be able to pay their bills and keep their employees on staff. 
that'll be a great day when we really see that money, uh, both from a- the angel community and the venture community, start to flow again. Yeah, and there are people investing still. I think those sure, folks who have sure. closed funds recently, and you just have to find them. I do want to add, if you are feeling disconnected or anyone listening feels a little removed, we, we ourselves, even though we're a fiscal place, we have virtual memberships. So people can be a part of our community for as low as 50 60 bucks a month, have a mail address, get some of those basic virtual office support and be a part of a connected ecosystem. I think that's going to be more important than ever too. I think we're all going to have to still stay connected virtually, um, whether or not our work styles change and how often they change. Uh, we still need each other. We still need to be around and connected to people. Indeed. Listen, Amanda, I love the program of being able to be part of it virtually. How do people find you? How do people access the opportunity to be part of the, the program you just offered? Absolutely. If you go to our website, BambooDetroit.com, you can learn more about our virtual memberships. Um, We have them both for our downtown location and our Royal Oak location as well, if you wanted a different mailbox address. Um, But lots of virtual programming and events, all of that is posted on our website. So we look forward to invite anybody to uh, connecting. That's really great. Thank you so much for being on Startup Nation Radio. We'll be looking to you in many ways for leadership, as we always have, Amanda. Thanks so much. And Continued, Thank you so much. Yeah, continued great success. I know you're going to do great. All right. That's um, that's our talk with Amanda Luan today, founder and CEO of Bamboo Detroit. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of Startup Nation Radio. The preceding program was furnished by Startup Nation Media Group.